We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Willers getting booking the guests in the newsroom down at Weeks. January brings in 2023 and Dad's 39th anniversary on the air. In his 40th year in the media. Oh, please. Here's no, 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 Scott no. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Oh, no, really. Stop it. There's no need. Honestly. Stop it. Okay. Just one more. Uh, good afternoon. It is three. Oh, no, really. Oh, God. Uh, it is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. <laughs> Uh, and you know, uh, welcome to Hamilton today. Glad to have you here on this second full week of, uh, 2023. So on that note, it, it, this was yesterday. No, it wasn't because that would have been Sunday. So this would have been the yes, the last yesterday I was here. So that would have been Friday. I believe we were talking to Eric Cam, who's a great guest, uh, economics professor at, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Anyway, so he he talks about it being a global news anniversary. Blah blah blah. I didn't even know it. <laughs> Wasn't aware of it. And then as I'm uh, as he's telling me this information, I'm looking at the calendar and I'm thinking, I think mine's coming up. And yes, it was on uh, January seventh of nineteen eighty four. Uh, that Daddy first started his uh, career in the media at a radio station in Ajax, uh, home of the White Tornado, and playing country music at a station called uh, CHOO. So as I'm having this conversation with Eric Cam, not about me, but about Global, I'm realizing, oh, mine's coming up. And I said 38. And then, you know, as you get older, you kind of think, you kind of think things uh, aren't as old as they really are, including yourself. So uh, then I did the math and I figured out, my God, it's 39. So theoretically, that's entering your 40th year. It's like, you know, you really don't feel old until you see numbers like that. And then you think, Holy geez, maybe I've got something. I mean, you know, I was never strong in math. Have I, you know, have I uh, carried the wrong, <laughs> have I carried the wrong numeral here? Am I doing something wrong? Uh, but anyway, so uh, as I start the year 2023, that's it, man. I'm a 40-year veteran, not, you know, 40th year anyway. So uh, I ain't taking any crap from anybody, you know what I mean? Feel free to jump. There you go. Thank you. Really. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, and you can leave Big Ben Strawn uh, your last word, too. Always looking for that. Uh, feel free. He would love to hear from you. All right. Uh, what do we got? So, oh, uh, so I don't know. I remember, like, you know, uh, obviously, if I've been doing this as long as I have, I'm like 60 this year. So I remember a couple of things that are starting to come back. Uh, one is, um, you know, when people start talking about climate change, I mean, I remember remember the leaded paint, leaded gasoline, ozone layer. So we've been through this a, a, a little bit. Uh, I also remember uh, lots of chatter of high-speed rail lines between, like, Montreal and Windsor and all this sort of stuff, and, you know, none of that's ever happened. Uh, and the other thing that we've been talking about since almost that long is fighter jets. <laughs> So, you know, uh, and I don't know, I think we needed them decades ago, but 
Um, we all of a sudden got a prime minister that wanted, you know, he thought he could hug the uh, meanness out of everybody. And, you know, it's all sunny ways. There's it's all nice socks and sunny ways. There's no no reason for the military. There's no reason for any equipment. Uh, but then you tell that to the people of, of Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, last time I checked, if you take a look at the globe that's sitting on your desk there, uh, you look right over the top there and there's Russia. So uh, finally, this has been done. And it's obviously a, a long term cost, a huge cost over. For a, a, a period of time with the first delivery of these F-35s uh, coming in 2026. But here's what Minister Anita Anon had to say about it all. We need to ensure that, especially in this changing global strategic environment, we are fulfilling our obligations to NORAD and to NATO. And never has it been more clear that this is the moment that we need to ensure the defense of our country, the protection of our country, including our Arctic. So as long as nobody attacks us till 2026, we're good. Um, I love when they say changing times. Well, no, really, what you've been doing for the last several decades is just letting your guard down. You know, everybody thought when the Berlin Wall fell that that was it. Uh, it was going to be running through the daisies for the rest of our lives. And then, of course, uh, 9-11 and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. So, again, you, you know, I, I, how much more is it costing us now than it is then, uh, or than it would have then? We'll have those discussions coming up a little later on. Also, on that note, the lo- leaders of Mexico, and uh, the United States and Canada meeting today and talking about new North American vision, which would be great to see. Here's hoping that that happens and is more uh, than just chatter. But once again, because of the world situation and what we're seeing uh, with the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and and the bulliness of China and such, uh, it's obviously we've got to start building stronger uh, deals with our our allies and and keeping those uh, connections real. Also, were you uh, watching the Buffalo Bills yesterday? What an incredible game that was, and what an emotional uh, uh, situation with with the uh, whole Damar Hamlin and and him uh, talking to the team just... uh, you know, days before and such, and and how that whole energy of that building uh, just kind of turned around, and in an incredible game uh, to boot with obviously the Bills uh, winning. So uh, great to hear, great to see. My brother-in-law was down there, actually took a picture. I was, uh, it was hilarious. So I'm going to talk to him a little bit later and get some uh, details on that. Also, uh, have you had enough of the Royal Dirty Laundry? You know, everybody likes a good story. I guess you know it's like the train wreck. We all have to look at least once. Um, but man, at what point does it, I just feel greasy. (laughs) I just feel ugly. I just, uh, I don't know. Uh, feel free. We'd love to hear your input on that. Uh, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, uh, how much is too much and, uh, have, uh, (laughs) has Harry crossed that line? If he's to look over his right shoulder, the line is right behind him. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of, um, I'm not sure where this is all going to go and how it's not just going to end up in a giant bun fight. But at the end of the day, uh, as I heard one, one, one Brit say when they were asked of this on the streets of the UK, uh, you know, we all got our own crap. We don't need to listen to the rich people's. So anyway, and, and, you know, honestly, a first word, a first world problem, do you think? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. 
Last week, I'm sure many of you saw clips or what have you from uh, uh, the great big show in Las Vegas, the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, it, it's always just uh, an unbelievable array of what is to come for us. And you may have noticed a uh, an electric vehicle that, that was there. And then all of a sudden, the uh, Canadian-Ontario connection, Canada's first zero-emission concept electric vehicle, developed at Ontario Tech University's Automotive Center of Excellence in Oshawa made its global debut at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. Uh, over the past uh, two years, the school's been home to some national engineering uh, national engineering project known as Project Arrow. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Stephen Murphy with us, President and Vice Chancellor at Ontario Tech University, and with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm very well. Great to be with you. So first of all, tell us about Ontario Tech University and this program that you've, you're Absolutely. involved in. Ontario Tech is a, it's a powerhouse on the eastern end of GTA uh, in Oshawa. We're only 20 years old, so a uh, rebranded name. So we're still getting that name out, but uh, very powerful in our strength or in engineering and specifically in energy. So this project around Project Era was right dead center in our, in our uh, trajectory. So what can you tell us about Project Arrow? What is it? Oh, it was a, it, it was a great uh, thing to be involved with. So firstly, as you, as you mentioned in the intro, Project Arrow brought together 55 uh, industry leaders to work with uh, a number of post-secondary institutions, Carleton Waterloo as others, um, and, and to really create and source the first all-Canadian electric vehicle. Uh, and in many ways, as we know, business cards are passe, and it's it's the business card to Canada to say, indeed, take a look at Project Arrow, and we can produce uh, electric vehicles, uh, the entire supply chain uh, in Canada and in Ontario. And I think it got the world really um, examining things. Because certainly at our university, with our wind tunnel, et cetera, we're working all the time with startups from California. So we know the future of automotive, whether it's hydrogen or whether it's EVs, is all about startups. Um, OEMs will continue to play a role like uh, the GMs of the world, et cetera. But uh, we really think uh, it's an exciting space. And uh, for Canadians um, who've always been looking to see, well, how can we put our technology to good use? Uh, this is a great way for us to think about our manufacturing base that I know that Hamilton is as proud of as Oshawa is. Uh, what's fascinating too here, Stephen, is that you know we've got an automotive industry that's uh, however old that it is. It's been doing certain things a certain way. Now we have a completely new concept. So can we take one, retool it to the other? I mean, obviously, as you said, the big businesses are, but there's also got to be a way to do this from the ground up, uh, creating a new template. And that's it. Looks like that's what you've done here with sources yeah. strictly from here. No, that's exactly right. And the fun part about this, as you know, of course, eventually all, all vehicles are produced on an, on an assembly line. What we had the luxury of being able to do is putting this up on a lift and asking ourselves the question, okay, if we want to get this right, what would it really look like? And that meant on an EV, everybody's looking for range. So it had to be light. So our students, what a great project. Can you imagine going to university and being able to do this? And yeah. Our students jumped in and they were actually able to design much of the body panel using 3D printing and carbon fiber. So if you open up that car, it'll feel as solid as any vehicle you've ever been in, but it's about a third the weight 
uh, of a car. And so the range of this vehicle is incredible. So I come back to your question. It's once you've got these uh, concepts nailed down and you bring costs down, then you can bring it to an assembly line. But to show that we were able to do this on time, within budget, and as a team in Canada, as I said, with 55 partners, we by no means did this alone. Um, it really shows that uh, you know we can we can punch above our weight if we pull together. So, what has been the reaction? What's the fallout from all of this? Well, it's been incredible. I, I was expecting, you know, some folks to, you know, people will say, Project Arrow, don't you know how the Avro Arrow went? And yeah. I'm not ashamed at all of how that went at, at the end because the start of it was all about Canadian ingenuity. And we all know if you're in tech, hey, if you're not failing fast, you haven't learned your lesson. So, I, I, I thought that the, you know, the next step here was we've all got to take a chance. We all had to go out of our safety zones for a university to be told, you know, produce this and in a tight timeline. That's not something universities are usually about. So uh, for all of us, we had to put down how we usually do things and say, how do we make things as innovative as possible? And I think that the future is all about us challenging those assumptions, no matter what walk of life we all work in. The, the pandemic and so many issues have forced us to rethink uh, how we're going to produce things as we move forward and how we're going to add value to the planet. And I think one of the really nice things about this is it not only is a new concept vehicle and it gets better mileage and all of that stuff, but it, it sends us on a path to say, this is a sustainable future. Um, it's not just tech for tech. It's tech to better our planet. And uh, I really like that message. And the feedback that I've gotten from Vegas has been unbelievably positive, that the American press has been, um, you know, as positive as the Canadian. And everybody just seems to be very excited about what it is that we can do in this space. And uh, so I think the future is uh, is one that uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, Startups, we're going to see a lot of people, in, you know, continue to be mining for the uh, the kinds of resources that are needed for for the batteries in these kinds of vehicles. Um, but for us, as a, as an energy pioneer who thinks that everything needs to be on the table, it was just a great example to say if you get the right team together, you can do anything. And uh, it's not that EVs are the be all and end all, as I said hydrogen and, and nuclear and everything is going to be in our future, not in terms of cars, but in terms of energy. Um, and this was just a great way of demonstrating that uh, in a collective, uh, in, a, in a collectivity. It was a, it was a beautiful uh, partnership. Dr. Stephen Murphy with us, President and Vice Chancellor, Ontario Tech University, Canada's first zero emission concept vehicle, making its debut at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. Uh, over 55 or 55 universities, institutions across the country being involved in this, just showing what Canada uh, can do. Congratulations, Stephen. Thanks so much. Be well. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. This will make you feel real good, especially on uh, a Monday, uh, heading into the new year, but ahead, a week ahead of before uh, the visa bills arrive. Uh, tax hikes on the way in 2023. This is driving me nuts. Uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, not pleased. You shouldn't be either. Uh, simply because an example of 14 cents uh, per liter of gasoline going up in April. We also got the accelerator tax on booze going up 6% uh, as well. 
you know, honestly, I've been saying this since the McGinty days, and, you know, I'm not a climate change denier. Obviously, we've got to do something. We've got to change the way we do do things, moving in the new in a new direction. Uh, but I honestly think that any t- because Canadians are so conscious about the environment, so conscious about doing the right thing, that as soon as you attach any tax and, and it's got a green label on it, they don't care. They just pay it because it makes them feel better when they're driving their SUV. That well, yeah, but I'm paying a lot for gas, so I get to do this. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, at what point do we actually make an impact on climate? For example, you know, trying to shut down uh, Canadian uh, uh, oil and gas industry when it's very much needed uh, to to fuel the rest of the world and get them off coal. So instead, we're shutting off the taps in a, in a country that produces less than 2% of the greenhouse gases around the world, as opposed to helping those get off that. Uh, and I've gone off in another direction here. But the point is, is uh, January of 2023 brings more taxes, and you should be aware of that. So we're bringing in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Hey, and I just want to add something to that little discussion that you had off the top there about carbon taxes. You know, another reason that carbon taxes in Canada just simply don't work is um, because we need to fuel our cars up with gasoline, right? We have a really big country, and if you're driving, if you live in Hamilton, for example, and you work in Toronto, well, uh, many times you may have to drive. You know, when I was growing up, my family lived in Port Hope. My mom commuted both to Toronto and to Richmond Hill. She had to get there by car many of the times. But not just that, we also need to heat our homes during these cold winter months. So natural gas, gasoline, diesel for so many Canadians are a necessity. So when you tax a necessity, it's not that people drive less or heat their homes less. They just have less money uh, to spend on groceries, to spend on hockey for their kids, or to spend on presents during Christmas that we just had. And, you know, like, again, I remember saying this during the McGinty era. It, it seems that we're just so in tune with climate change and we're so aware because Canadians always want to do the right thing um, that we just get taken. Oh, yeah, this is for the environment. This is for the environment. This is it's, this has just become a revenue stream, it, it, it seems, for governments. Uh, you know, like 14 cents a liter in April, gas is going up. Where is that going? Where is yeah, that money going? No kidding. And remember, when you talk about a revenue grab, well, you got sales taxes applied on the other taxes at the pump, right? A tax on tax. So you add in another tax or you increase the tax and you are going to be increasing government revenue. And you know what really frustrates me is that we've heard politicians within the Trudeau government continue, 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 continue to say that with the carbon taxes and the rebates, families are better off. But that's not the case. That's not the case. You can't raise taxes and you can't skim some money off the top to hire new bureaucrats to fund the, or to administer the program and then somehow make people better off. And it's not just us saying this. The government's own independent budget watchdog, the parliamentary budget officer, shows this year that the average family, the carbon tax will cost the average family between 400 and 850 bucks, even after the rebates. 
You know, it, it's it, it, you know we certainly know where the economy is now. Interest rates, inflation, and such heading into winter. You're talking about gas bills and and, and you know, whether it's propane, natural gas, what have you. Uh, by the time April rolls around and this 14 cent a liter uh, tax is put on gas, will things be different then? I mean, will all of a sudden we won't be as pressed or stressed as we are now? Will this go by without? Oh, I didn't even notice the price of gas went up 14 cents a liter today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it kind of reminds me of the old adage, right? You ask five economists, you get six answers. I mean, the truth of the matter <laughs> is, is that it's, it's so tough to tell, right? It's so tough to tell what's going to happen. Um, but hold on a second here, because the, it, it also underscores the direction that the government is taking Canada and, and is really what is doing to taxpayers, to drivers, to Canadians, right? Because it's increasing the 14 cents a liter this year. But we haven't even seen the big tax increases at the pumps yet, right? Because eventually this carbon tax is going up to 37 cents a liter by 2030. Now, all of a sudden, 2030 isn't so far away. It's only seven years, 37 cents a liter of gasoline. But not just that. We also have another carbon tax coming in this year. It's a second carbon tax. It's through fuel regulations. And the government's own analysis shows that it's going to be consumers, surprise, surprise, who end up paying for it at the pumps. But by 2030, this second carbon tax could cost about 13 cents a litre of gasoline. So for all the people who've got their calculators out now, by 2030, carbon taxes alone could cost nearly 50 cents per litre of gasoline. Never mind the cost to actually buy the fuel. So... uh... Let's move on to one of these other ones. Uh, we've talked about this before, the accelerator tax on alcohol. Has this gone into effect yet? It's this month, no. isn't it? April 1st is when the April alcohol 1st as well. Yep, April 1st. That joke's on us, right. isn't it? <laughs> it's going to be 6.3% this year. And, you know, let's just set aside the cost for a second because a 6.3% tax hike is a lot. But one of the big things that really grinds my gears is that it's undemocratic. Because nobody's voting on this tax increase. It was shoved in the 2017 budget to go up every single year. And you know what? I'm a firm believer that if politicians, if they really think that they need to raise taxes for whatever reason, right, whatever reason, then they should at least vote on it. They should at least have the responsibility to tell Canadians why they're raising taxes. But these politicians are ducking accountability because every year the tax automatically goes up. And I remember the old days, we talked about this before, whenever the sin taxes went up, it always, uh, it generated lots of news, especially around election campaigns. Yeah, but unfortunately, uh, it didn't really generate too much news back in 2017. And let me tell you why. This is when the escalator was first introduced in the federal budget. Well, back then, inflation was relatively low, right? We're talking about 2%, relatively low, so people really didn't notice it. This year, inflation is sky high, which means that the tax is going to be extra painful. But there's another pernicious thing about this, because just because you have small tax increases every year, over time, that becomes a big tax increase. So since 2017, after this year's tax hike, all of the tax increases combined on alcohol will be about 18%, about 18% just because of the escalator tax. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. It's a new year. It's a new slate of taxes. Get ready. Batten down the hatches. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. My wife was, hey, can you record the 60 minutes? Uh, I got to see the hairy thing. Uh, I'm in and out. I'm watching it. I, I think I'm, I'm on overload at this point. It's, it's, um, as one, uh, clip of some citizen in London said, uh, you know, tired of hearing of their first world problems. I got enough of my own. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She's with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Uh, yes, I'm doing well. And yes, I actually watched yesterday's interview. Have you had enough yet? Have we had enough yet? Well, apparently we have not. And, you know, despite everybody saying that they've had enough, they've had enough, the media is not letting go of this. Including so us. Look at us. Based on that, um, it almost is like they're keeping it top of mind. And I don't think it matters whether we have had enough or not, but unless some other world event happens to knock this off uh, the top of the news agenda, and apparently not even a coup in South America will do that, Hmm. this is still going to play out until the book actually drops. So I think that we can expect to hear more tomorrow and probably some residual uh, throughout the week. Um, we were trying to figure out why he was doing this, but he sort of later explained in his 60 minute interview, um, that, um, abuse needs to be exposed. Is that his objective? Is it just about, um, is it exposing the bad things, getting his story out? What do you think his objective is? Well, you know, it's interesting. He said it himself, you know, I want to control my own narrative. So basically Harry just unloaded everything and anything that could have happened from the time that his mother died when he was a kid to present day. So basically there's nothing left on the slate that the palace can now take and say, oh, remember when he did this or remember when he did that, or perhaps start engaging in another warfare via the media. Everything's out there now. So basically in the way that he has um, put everything out on the on a silver platter, basically for us to um, digest and divulge and to talk about, The royal family, he feels, will no longer have any ammunition in order to come after him nor Meghan. And what's Mm. interesting is, is that, you know, when you control your own narrative, which is something that we always try to do with public relations, uh, with the media, I mean, sometimes you can control it and sometimes you can't. But in, in this case, he's put everything out there. So in essence, he really has set out, he really has accomplished what he has set out to do. Uh, is this going to hurt or help the royals? Uh, does he look at it from that perspective, or or perspective, or is it just for him? Uh, and, and not, you know, I can understand his point. He's got to get his story out before someone else does. Well, I would have to say that there's now some PR or damage control that has to be done with um, William and Kate. He did not yeah. portray them in a very nice light, especially his brother. Mm. I remember the or quote Camellia. was, you know, Camellia. William always looking at me with his frown and pinched face. And I'm thinking, oh, my. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then there was the whole bit about Camilla, which actually I kind of found quite juicy, to be quite honest. And I think that nobody was surprised about that behavior um, with respect to Camilla. And, you know, Kate, you know, we all have to remember you know, Kate is not to the manor born. You know, Kate's mother was a stewardess and her father was a pilot. 
Kate just found herself in a very uh, advantageous position. Some say that her mother was grooming her, um, in essence, to meet somebody like uh, Prince William. But, you know, everybody comes from uh, a different background and you and we all have to remember where we came from. Yes, the royal family does have a long lineage, but not everybody that they married has either. So I don't think it's likely. I thought, well, maybe there will be some rep- retribution, you know, from um, Kate and William's side against Meghan at this point. But now, you know, they can't because basically they've taken that gambit off the table. I think what everybody's waiting for now, Scott, is will the royal family make a statement will they keep their usual cone of silence and stiff upper lip and will they just let their good works in supporting um, british institutions organizations and nonprofits speak for themselves uh that was my next question obviously no comment from the palace at this point do they leave it that way do they have to address this um this trench is pretty deep now i would say you know, you're right, Scott. And I think that, you know, if we were, if there was PR counsel to the palace, I think it's a different type of PR counsel. Normally one would say, okay, well, let's just have a holding statement and let's say something. Um, the further you get away from not saying anything, it becomes harder and harder and harder to actually come out with a statement. And maybe they're waiting for the book to drop so they can, you know, have a quick speed read and see if there isn't anything else that they missed that they absolutely need to address. You know, by having that 60 minute interview on Sunday, that should have been the pinnacle, really, of, um, you know, their PR rounds. But obviously, you know, Harry is still doing interviews up until the very moment. But what's interesting, Scott, is there's no mention nor there's no appearance of Megan in any of this. So, you know, their counsel has quite hmm. astutely said, okay, Harry, if this is your game and if this is your narrative, then Megan can't be anywhere near it. And we are now going to position her as collateral damage. So really, it's a very, very savvy strategy and they're playing it all the way through. And so will we see these little uh, little juicy pieces drop every so often until this book does? Or is this 100%. it? We, do we know everything now? Well, I mean, I don't know how much more we can we can actually know because it's, we've yeah, simply, really. you know, they, what are they calling it? Um, spare laundry. Um, you know, we've certainly heard just about everything. I can't imagine that there's even anything more. And if there is something particularly salacious, we're going to hear about it either tomorrow or directly after somebody gets their hands on a copy. Um, well, there is a copy out in one of the, some of the Spanish bookstores. And I don't know if anybody is doing some quick translation, but really I think that if there's anything else super salacious, we're going to hear about it. And then I think if you're the Royal family, you're hoping that this runs it runs its course and just goes away. Yeah, then what? Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture expert, uh, Prince Harry the Spare, uh, coming out soon. And the interviews just keep on rolling. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yes, thank you, Scott. We were just talking a little earlier uh, with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation in regard to uh, the price of energy and uh, where it is and the fact that uh, coming up April 1st, the new carbon tax is going to add 14 cents 
to the price of a liter of gasoline when we're uh, feeling the pinch that we are with inflation and soaring interest rates and such. And many experts are saying that 2023 will not bring much relief when it comes to the price of energy. Uh, many thought during the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic when everything shut down and literally uh, uh, prices went down, everything went down, everything came to a grinding halt, that demand would stay that way. And of course, we're finding out that's not the case as life fires up again. Let's bring in Atif Kaburzi, Professor Emeritus, Economics, McMaster University, President of Ecometric uh, Research Limited, and former Undersecretary to the United Nations, and with us now. Atif, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing? Uh, not bad. Uh, happy always to be with you. And Happy New Year to you, Atif. So what are your thoughts? How has uh, this global pandemic changed the demand of energy? As I said earlier, many thought it was it, after it went down, it would stay down. Obviously, now it's coming back. How has the global pandemic changed this in- industry? Well, it uh, disrupted the supply chains. And on top of it, we have the war in Ukraine. And Russia was a major oil and gas supplier, and now it's not supplying as much. So the market is so thin, so that one single party does not uh, supply or produce as much as it did, it will automatically translate into higher prices. And uh, there are also other factors uh, that came into play. And, and these, as you have just mentioned, that uh, we have prices on carbon, and these are going to add uh, to the uh, cost of uh, uh, gas at the pump. Uh, as far as uh, what we can be doing, we know where we are with energy. We know where we're... Oh, have we lost Atif? Can we get him out? All right. Do you want to take a quick break here, or do you want to keep going? All right, we've lost uh, Atip Kaburzi, Professor Emeritus, Economics at Pasta University. We're uh, going to try to get him back as quickly as possible. Uh, we were talking about, obviously, during the global pandemic, how demand for energy went uh, through the basement. Uh, I remember going outside and looking up and not seeing any airplanes. It was very odd. And if you did, it had FedEx on the back. <laughs> it was, it was, they were delivering packages, not people. And uh, you can imagine when you know you, you, you take that sort of transportation out of the picture. Uh, people aren't going to work. People are, are locked up. Uh, obviously, uh, we do not need the energy in order to, to keep life functioning. But uh, obviously, when you do that, you shut economies down and things start to go backwards. Uh, so how long can you keep doing uh, uh, or, or thinking that that will be the case? There was many environmentalists that thought that that was it for energy and it was never coming back. However, we have still not made that transition. And and uh, obviously, uh, we're going to need a transitionary period to get there. Do we have uh, Atif Kaburzi? Are you there, Atif? Yeah, I am. Sorry, somebody called me and cut us up. No, no, that's okay. So um, my question, we were talking about how the global pandemic has changed uh, the demand for energy and such. And we know where we are in a transitional period here, but we still obviously uh, are, are going to need fossil fuels, natural gas, this sort of thing. Are we doing enough to rid the world of coal? Could we be using, you know, whether it's Canada, the United States, whatever, could we be using more of our natural gas reserves and making a bigger dent on the environment uh, uh, battle that we've got going here, um, rather than just trying to turn everything off, tax the hell out of everything, and, and, and just make it more expensive for Canadians. 
No, it's going to be more expensive for Canadians, and some people felt that maybe making it more expensive would really be an incentive for people to economize and to make sure they don't consume uh, more of this uh, dirty, so to speak, uh, type of resource that is fouling the air and the global warming. The story is to what extent uh, are we doing enough? Uh, maybe not enough, uh, but uh, the very fact that we have this war and the way it disrupted uh, the war in Ukraine, the supply chains on top of the COVID effects uh, is basically uh, not helping in the effort of people and countries in the world uh, to economize on the use of dirty fuels, fossil fuels, but particularly uh, we're talking about coal and uh, gas and uh, uh, oil. Uh, the story is Many people have argued that we need to keep half of our oil and more of our gas in the ground unless uh, we're going to uh, make it impossible uh, for the world to live with a rise in temperature of uh, more than two degrees above pre-industrial time. So is there any business case for Canadian natural gas, Atif? Well, there is, definitely. I mean, look, I mean, one of the... uh, fortunate things for Canada is that we have enough energy and we not only enough for ourselves because the export and then sometimes because of certain issues with pipelines we tend to import oil in the east and export oil from the west but the story is definitely one in which this planet would not survive and we would not be able to contain and constrain uh, the rise in temperature above what is considered to be sustainable. And that's the real issue here. And the the issue is also to what extent as we move off this fossil fuel, are we building, are we making the transition to cleaner energy? And we have abundance of uh, opportunities, especially, particularly, uh, our provinces that depend so heavily on fossil fuel fuel and maybe have a, a greater chance here to create more jobs, more incomes, if we were to make the transition. We are a very fortunate and highly educated people, and we have the capacity to master the technologies that would allow us to move into the new economy with cleaner energy. Atif Kabursi with us, Professor Emeritus Economics at Master University. Atif, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Uh, you too. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, I'm old enough to remember when they used to be talking about high-speed rail lines between Montreal and Windsor. Uh, They've been talking about replacing fighter jets for almost as long. And (laughs) uh, I'm surprised the technology hasn't completely changed again. I guess it has over time. That being said, Canada has finalized a long-awaited deal to replace its aging fleet of CF-18 fighter jets with... Uh, 88 Lockheed Martin F-35 fighter jets to become uh, to begin arriving, I believe, around 2026. Why is this all happening now, especially when the Prime Minister said they weren't needed and was against the deal? Let's bring in Richard uh, Shimuka, Senior Fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thanks, Adam. 
And Happy New Year to you, Richard. Why do you think this is all happening now? It seemed for the longest time the Prime Minister was not interested in, in this or, or um, well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, why is this happening now? I mean, is this all just simply because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, we're kind of at the end of the process, and there's no real other way to dodge the end of it, for lack of a better word. Uh, they've done a pretty good job of trying to push us off as far as they can, but at this stage, there was just nowhere else to go and they need to replace the cf-18s uh this the aircraft is by the end of by the end of the service life at 2032 they're going to be about 50 years old really most fighter jets aren't supposed to last past 30 years uh you can push it through like refits and whatnot but if you look at the state of our aircraft and just actually how obsolete they are in the sort of uh threat environment uh the aircraft needs to be replaced we should have been replaced 10 years ago but really needs to be replaced now and this is basically the point where they decide to make that decision as you said uh, this has been talked about for years uh why do you keep pushing it off just because it's such a big expense for government no it's more part of it was that when the conservatives made the decision back in around 2010 2012 uh, the other political parties try to make it a make it a kind of political make political hay out of it basically yeah. uh, they criticized it and there were some issues with how it was procured but really they were fairly minor in, in retrospect uh when Kenneth trudeau back in 2014 basically uh was running for his uh running for to be the prime minister he made a statement that i would as you said he would never buy it and later he would say this never works and all that and and he had sort of some advisors who had suggested this was a terrible purchase and everything since has kind of been reversing that, reversing that sort of statement and that decision to the point where they've kind of completely backtracked today, where they've announced the decision to procure it. Uh, does it would it cost more now? Advantages, disadvantages to waiting so long and pushing it off? Uh, in some ways, if you do some of the counting, yes, it costs a little bit more. Really, the prices that were outlined back in 2010 are basically similar to what they are now. The the aircraft is around $75, $85 million a copy. Uh, if That seems like a lot, but if you compare it to all the other options, it's significantly cheaper. It's partly because we've been part of this partnership to procure this aircraft over 20 years. And so we get the same price as the U.S. government pays, and we don't pay any surcharges. is what the U.S. government usually does, but in this case, we don't. So they're about the same. Uh, but the problem is that because we delayed it so long, we've actually created a crisis in the Air Force where a lot of pilots and maintainers have kind of quit. Uh, yeah. They were fed up with the situation. They didn't want to fly, uh, you know, 35, 40-year-old aircraft. Uh, they see what everybody else is getting, and they see that they don't really have the tools to do their job. And that, plus COVID and some other issues, kind of pushed the Air Force to a crisis point that we are today where we're really not able to do very much beyond defending a small segment of our territory with the help of the United States. We can't even deploy abroad. So we used to assist NATO in Eastern Europe. We've actually suspended those missions probably until we finally get the last F-35, which will be in 2030s. Have we taken for granted the fact that we have a strong uh, neighbor in the U.S.? I think so. I, but the other side is that the Americans kind of let us do that for a certain amount of time. And then now they're, if, if you talk to a lot of American officials, they've come wise to the fact that we aren't the partner that we used to. Back around 2010, we had just been part of Afghanistan, uh, operations in Afghanistan, and they were very pleased with what we had, you know, helped them with various missions. Today, we're kind of seen as a freeloader. And, and, yeah. and I, those are the specific words they'll use. Uh, and, and that's causes issues all across all of our aspects of our, let's say, our trade policy and whatnot. They're just less inclined to kind of do things for us 
when we're not really spending on defense or adequately defending our territory, one that we have an agreement to jointly defend together. Uh, the, the defense minister said that this is all due to NATO obligations and pressure from uh, from obviously within NATO, as you just said, we're calling freeloaders and such. Is Does that fly with the people who are against this procurement? No, I, I think that there's a significant segment that believes that we don't have to you know, spend yeah. on defense or we can sort of continue on. I think there's many Canadians who believe that, well, you know, should we really be a part of sort of, you know, intrigue in other countries. And, and that's long been the case. I, I think other, many Americans, many Americans are somewhat isolationist, right? So I don't think those kind of arguments work for a segment. I think many Canadians, though, don't fully understand, I guess, the basics or the sort of uh, what's required to actually conduct defense. If you look at, let's say, Finland, a country that's right beside the Russian Federation, they're very acutely aware of what they need, and, and they are very quick to procure systems. Israel's another country, right? Canada, I think partly because it seems far away, even though it really isn't in a lot of cases, doesn't really have that same sense. And we don't have a community in like journalists or politicians who really care about it that much. So, you know, Canadians themselves are able to not they don't really have to think about it in in these sort of very real terms. Uh, The defense minister said the world has changed. Uh, Has the world really changed? Or if you take your foot off the gas sooner or later, you slow down and someone's going to pass you and you're left behind. Well, I think you see that a bit with the Air Force, right? Again, we were unable to do anything beyond just some limited continental defense with, you know, what aircraft we have left. Uh, I think, again, I kind of outlined it with the United States, but the world has changed and Canada has Canada used to be seen as a really strong international partner within NATO, within other forests, within allies in Eastern Asia as well. And Canada's kind of disappeared and it makes it really difficult for us to do other things like climate change or or broader diplomatic negotiations that with our allies, when we're not really there providing or, you know, providing or helping with their security, it makes it difficult for them to care about our concerns. And so... That has you know, and now that you see these security threats like with Taiwan and China or you know, Ukraine, those concerns, the, the immediacy of their security situations and the threats that they face is more important to them. And they want us to kind of step up and help. And, and again, we've just really not done that for the better part of a decade here. Richard Schmuga with us, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Canada has finalized a long-awaited deal to replace the CF-18 fighter jet with 88 Lockheed Martin F- uh, Lockheed Martin's F- uh, F-35 fighter jets to begin arriving around 2026. Richard, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's find out what's happening in the U.S. Uh, Three Amigos Summit going on down there. The leaders of Canada, the United States, and Mexico all getting together. And the fallout of uh, from the battle uh, for the Speaker's Chair. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat, host of Just Ask the Question podcast, and the new book, Death of the American Journal of American Journalism, How to Revive It. Uh, Brian J. Karam is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. How about yourself, brother? 
So far, so good. So before we get to the Amigo Summit, talk uh, about the fallout uh, with the whole speakers thing. Is this now done? Is it behind us? Is it last week's news? <laughs> Yesterday's news is tomorrow's fish and chip paper. Where did I hear that before? It's yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, Elvis Costello lyrics aside. I, what you've seen is um, basically the, the Republican Party, the far right held the farther right, the farther right held the far right uh, <laughs> to the task. They held him hostage. And uh, he had to make a deal. This is what uh, McCarthy has wanted his whole life is to be speaker. So he gave away everything to do it. The funny thing is, is they have to approve a rules package that will govern the next two years of the House tonight. And there is talk that uh, the Democrats and some of the um, more well, the more um, moderate Republicans will strike a deal to make sure that none of the rules that the farthest right wanted in place will go into place. So it's another, it'll be another show of, you know, it'll be another circus tonight is what it, it'll amount to. And it could go on for a long time or they could do it all behind uh, closed doors. And at the end of the day, it's not good either way because the Republican party has so compromised uh, this, these next two years of Congress that if anything gets done at all, I'd be surprised. And that means that we're facing government shutdowns, omnibus bills won't get passed, uh, things won't be, you won't get money for projects. So we'll see. It's it's not it's not looking good as we start, but anything can happen in Congress, and it usually does. All right, uh, three amigos summit taking place. Uh, obviously, the presidents of uh, the United States and Mexico, and the Prime Minister of Canada there, looking up for a new vision for North America. Is it different now for this? Well, it's not different, but what it is, is it's a little more um, acute. The problem is uh, more acute. The Republicans have one of the things that uh, Biden is going to have to deal with. You know, Governor Abbott in Texas says too little too late about dealing with a border uh, problem. But look, our southern border in the United States with Mexico has been a problem since the 70s. And every president has kicked the can down the road. And the reason why they've kicked the can down the road is because the cheap labor that comes into the U.S. fuels our economy, and no one really wants to do anything with it. In 1985, mm -hmm. they passed uh, the Simpson-Mazzoli Act, which made it uh, uh, illegal to hire uh, undocumented workers. Until then, it had been legal to do so, but no one's ever been prosecuted for it. So it, it, I don't expect anything will happen on that front. The thing that is going to happen, I think there are business concerns that all three countries have and I think the, uh, these three countries working together are going to try and move some of the manufacturing of microchips from China to the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And if they reach agreement on those things, that's probably the most important thing that will come out of this summit. That means a stronger economy and more jobs for all three countries, depending on how it, it works out. So that's what I would be looking for as the key issue. It's, it's going to be an economic issue and uh and of course, manufacturing that they're going to be looking at while they're there. And that's the most important thing. All the uh, immigration stuff will be shunted aside. And honestly, is not there's no way to solve that problem in such short of, uh, you know, they haven't done it for 40 years. They're not going to do it in 48 hours. So um, more priority on self-sufficiency between North America at this point, getting some of what was done overseas back here. Uh, is this a different tone? Are we? Is there more pressure to get this done now than there has been in the past? Well, there is some pressure to get it done, but you're also dealing with in Biden, someone who has a great deal uh, of, you know, he's been around for a while. So he, he's not a neophyte to this. He's got a great deal of mm -hmm. experience. 
on the international and national scene. So there is a feeling that perhaps he could get something done that others could not. Donald Trump liked to say he was a deal maker, but it's actually Biden who has proven so far in his presidency that he is one by striking deals with Republicans and, you know, uh, meeting with people across the globe, even people that he doesn't necessarily agree with and striking a deal with them. So I would say the pressure, it has increased the expectations more importantly have increased because with the experience that Biden brings to the game, there was a natural inclination to believe that something greater will be done this time around. All right. Three Amigos Summit uh, is on with the leaders of the United States, Canada and Mexico, uh, hashing it all out. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter and columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat. As always, Brian, fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, my brother. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Former finance minister uh, has written a new book, a former liberal MP for Toronto Centre. And, of course, it uh, it isn't very complimentary of uh, the prime minister. He uh, and former finance minister Morneau has been giving some interviews on this uh, in which he's treated the prime minister with a, a little bit more of a kid glove, but uh, not so much in the book. Uh, does this damage? What does it say? Or is he just as guilty as uh, the prime minister let's bring in tim powers chairman summa strategies managing director abacus data and with us now tim thanks for the time hope you're well happy new year happy new year buddy and thanks for the great big c always appreciate that so what are your thoughts on this tell-all book um is is the fo- former finance minister just as guilty does this hurt the prime minister's credibility what are your thoughts on what we're hearing It'll be like number 8,000 on the bestseller list, way behind Prince Harry's book. I mean, it is nowhere near as salacious and exciting as Prince Harry's book. No stories of frost-nipped, bitten appendages, Scott, or tussles with his brother. So if you can get past the lack of excitement in it, uh, I I guess the book kind of confirms a lot of things for people here in Ottawa, that um, there was some tension or between Morneau and uh, and Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, that Morneau uh, felt you know he wasn't being listened to, and as he described it, he sort of felt he was being kind of a rubber stamp figure. I mean, none of that is really new in there. Uh, new from from an Ottawa perspective, I think what's most problematic for the the government, and I, I do mean it lightly in this respect, is that Morneau basically. Uh, reinforces the thesis that conservative leader Pierre Polyev has been trying to build that Justin Trudeau is responsible for uh, significant spending that didn't need to be done, and that's had a negative impact on the economy. Uh, it, I mean, maybe it tells you how worried the government is about this book that uh, they haven't even bothered to comment off or on the record on it. So I think they, they're viewing it as a little bit of a, a pillow hitting their faces, not a sledgehammer. <laughs> a pillow hitting their faces. There you go. Uh, a, uh, a journalist asked uh, the former finance minister if the prime minister was a good manager of the economy, and they very much, he very much sidestepped the question um, and, and tried to be as delicate as he he could. Does this, as you mentioned, just confirm what we already know? Uh, does it change direction in any way? Does it does it change perception, or is this just um, another nail? Uh, I, I think it's a nail that's already in there. I don't think it's a new nail. Yeah. Uh, I think it reinforces perception. I mean, let's not 
take away Bill Morneau's motives here. They're, look, I'll give him one benefit of the doubt. I'm sure he believes what he's saying about long-term policy and thinking that way. I agree with him on that. But, um, you know, he was at the center of the week, we scandal. That's maybe this may be an attempt to airbrush that a little bit. And maybe he wants to try and settle scores a little bit. I mean, he was a successful CEO, a person of pride, and clearly perhaps didn't like wearing more of the wee scandal than than the prime minister did. But this is not going to be one of the greatest Canadian political memoirs ever written. It's not going to be something that's going to immediately change the face of things. And yeah, I suspect the next time you and I talk, Scott, Prince Harry's book will still be at the top of the list, and Bill Morneau's may already be in the dustbin being recycled. So if there had been a little bit more pushing and shoving, this might be a bit more well, interesting. I mean, Is a that what you're appendage. I mean, gosh, yes. I mean, oh, if you grabbed the prime minister by the lapels and they'd had a, a, a tussle, uh, yes. I, look, again, I don't want to discount Morneau. He, he, he's a smart person. But I, I think in, even in the way he's rolled out the book, he's demonstrated his political naivety. If he mm. wanted to have more of an impact, he could have been, as you cited, you know, more precise in the language. Because uh, he's clearly, you know, he's, he's coding that he doesn't think the prime minister is a great economic manager. He tells the story, or I've seen it reported, that he tells the story about, you know, the night before one of the big benefit packages was, was to come out for, uh, for COVID-19 relief, how he'd gone forward and finance had gone forward with a pack that he thought was reasonable, and the prime minister took that and added more money to it. So Hmm. (laughs) that tells you a lot about policy being made on the fly. So be more direct. If you're going to be a critic, Mr. Morneau, be more direct in your critique. All right. um, Defense Minister Anand announcing today purchase of F-35 jets, uh, first of which was to arrive, I guess, in 2026. Uh, Change of of course here. Uh, The Prime Minister said at one time, no, ain't going to happen. Why now? Why is this all happening now? Is this all about Russian invasion of Ukraine? We have planes that are flying, Scott. I I shouldn't say that. We don't have many jets that are flying. They're all past their life cycle. This is a jet uh, our American partners have long suggested we uh, we want. You've heard that phrase interoperability before. It's effectively an off-the-shelf buy, so that's why they're buying a jet that they said they wouldn't buy uh, because it's the most uh, currently easily accessible and effective fighter available. Should we have done this a decade or so ago? Does it matter? Uh, yeah, it matters. I mean, look, we, we rattle the sword about uh, what we want to do in the Ukraine and, and elsewhere. I mean, we are, uh, you've had any number of generals, admirals, anybody who's worn a uniform tell you our equipment is garbage. Uh, and we're lucky we have the men and women in, in the uniform who are high quality and high class, those who are serving, the scandals aside. Uh, yeah, we should have bought this long ago. Uh, this thing has been delayed. God, remember Michael Ignatius yeah. was looking to bring down the Harper government in 2008 over this jet procurement. We're 15 years on and we still don't have jets. Uh, the defense minister said the world has changed. Has the world changed or are we just taking our foot off the gas? And if you do that, sooner or later people pass you and you're following. Yeah, I, I agree fully with your, your with your theory. I mean, uh, I think we've we've created no other options for ourselves, and shame on us for that because we've dilly dallied. Look, uh, our military procurement is 
terrible um, because there's so many hands on it. And there should be some, of course, because there needs to be accountability. But we just can't move very quickly. And when it comes to machines of war or artificial intelligence, what have you, uh, advanced technology, it just, you know, technology changes so quickly. So, yeah, an end isn't wrong to say that. But we're to blame for the delay and whatever new costs come with that. Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much. A great way to start the year. Thanks for the time. Be well. Make sure you wear long john, Scott. You don't want a frostbite down there, okay? Got him on, dude. Got him on. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. You're going to talk about the Three Amigos Summit and the purchase, uh, upcoming pur- uh, purchase of F-35s announced by the Defense Minister today. Uh, Ian is on the line now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, doing very well, thanks, Scott. Let's start with the uh, Three Amigos Summit. Uh, obviously, the leaders of Canada, the United States, and Mexico all getting together. This has happened before. It's nothing new here. But is it different now, considering where the world is, whether it's uh, on the heels of a pandemic, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is is this summit more uh, important now than it has been in the past? Um, yes and no. Um, and I've, I've got so much to say about this, so I'll be as quick as I can, Scott. Why this the, the whole partnership that dates back to NAFTA is so important is because it did bring these three countries together. It was the innovative leadership of Brian Mulroney. I was personally very involved at a very micro level. I had just started as a professor, brand new, freshly minted professor, when we went into that famous election where John Turner said it was the fight of his life. And they were looking for, in the local area of eastern Ontario and Ottawa, were looking for people to go out and defend the new NAFTA agreement. And so I volunteered and said, sure, because I believed, I've always believed in free trade. And so I was going out to high schools and debating, no kidding, the, uh, the uh, she's about my age, from the uh, uh, Independence Canada or whatever it was called. And she was saying um, that, you know, we were going to be forced to shut down our health, public health care and sell our water to the states. And I was just sitting there flabbergasted by this. But to the larger point where you want to go and I want to go, I supported it then and I support it now. Having said that, having said the idea of NAFTA with the three countries, U.S., Mexico, Canada, I think that perhaps it's being a bit oversold. And I'm not suggesting that there isn't some form of deglobalization going on where we're bringing some supply chain production back from China. That's going on. It's not going on because the three amigos are meeting. It's going on, the three leaders. It's going on because of these macro-global events that you referenced. But why I'm saying it's it's been a bit oversold is, is that, and I've taught in Mexico. I've been to Mexico, and I do not mean to where the Canadian tourists go. I've been in Mexican cities. And, and it, to put it mildly, um, Mexico is not Canada or the U.S. It's not a high-income, a fully yeah. rule-of-law country. Tremendous corruption in Mexico, uh, human rights violations. We're seeing that with the current president. He's trying yeah. to shut down and remove uh, checks and balances and human rights protections. And so what I'm suggesting is I understand there's some uh, supply chains will be brought back, and I hope they go to Mexico. But this idea that somehow they're a, uh, a full-fledged partner with the U.S. and Canada, I think is a bridge too far. I think we should be talking about what uh, former Ambassador Bruce Hyman, uh, um, uh, Barack Obama's ambassador to Canada, and he wrote a wonderful op-ed just two days ago 
uh, sorry, back in June of this year, calling for a bigger, bolder partnership between Canada and the States. We've got to talk about a real NAFTA. How about NAFTA 3? Full free trade, including energy, oil, natural gas, you bring up a very you bring up a very valid you bring up a valid point here, Ian, because I, I remember uh, the story when the German Chancellor came to Canada looking for natural gas, didn't get it, and then went to Mexico and got it. Is that on the table? Are those issues on the table? Because obviously the quality control is different there. I think they should be, and I'm not suggesting there aren't issues to be dealt with, such as environmental standards, and we got to harmonize and so forth. But when I talk about a closer relationship, Bruce Hyman talks about NORAD. My late father was a pilot in the armed forces, and he actually went to NORAD headquarters. He was fully cleared to the top security level. This was many, many years ago. I mean, we've got to, especially now we've seen what Putin did in Ukraine, and we see the saber rattling of China with Taiwan. We've got to reinvigorate NORAD and come up with a blanket North American security protection between Canada states. Maybe we won't have to buy those military planes. We can put the money into and divvy up the responsibilities. Okay, America, you you buy the big planes and the you know and that sort of thing, and we'll provide something else as part of the partnership. But this partnership I'm talking about is not just trade. It's got to be involved in energy. It's got to involve national security and threats from Russia and China. Like we got to think really much bigger than we have in the past. All right, F-35s announced today. This has been a long time coming. We remember uh, this was chatted about decades ago. Um, The U.S. uh, just recently calling us freeloaders for not stepping up and keeping our military uh, equipped and such. Why is this happening now? Is this all about the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I think that that's really uh, caused a change in Ottawa with, uh, and by the way, I fully respect the Minister of National Defense. She's a former law professor at, I think, University of Alberta, sharp as a tack, very intelligent, very competent person, probably one of the two most competent ministers in all of Ottawa in the Parliament of Canada, including the Prime Minister, by the way. Yeah. She and Christia Freeland are probably our two most competent ministers. Um, And uh, the, the, the world has changed. I mean, Putin has shown that our naivete for all of us for the last 30 years or so, there's no more wars. Wars are obsolete. They're a thing of the past. You know, big countries don't do that anymore. Boy, oh boy, were we ever naive. And Mr. Putin destroyed all those naivetes. And we've got to, we've come back down to earth. And uh, so I think that that's part of it. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the recognition that the geopolitical world has changed. But, you know, I hope that we go beyond that. And I was a huge supporter. I wrote an op-ed in, um, uh, oh, my goodness, it was five, six, seven, eight years ago, supporting the F-35s. I wrote it with General Ken Penny, who just retired as the chief of the Armed Forces of Canada, or chief of the Air Force, I'm not sure which, a smart guy. And we supported it. And I'm not a way, I don't consult to these organizations. I just support it because I thought it was a, everything I read about it was, it was a great plane, a great piece of advanced technology. But now post Putin in Russia, we've got to think much more than just, you know, 50 or 20 or 80 or hundred planes. We've got to think much more strategically, much more comprehensively. And, and I think that the tool, the framework is NORAD. And it is there. It was signed way back in the Cold War. So that framework exists. We're not talking about some new partnership. We're just talking expanding the parameters of the partnership. And I'm talking going way beyond just planes. Planes are important, but I'm talking everything from a nuclear shield, almost a Star Wars type shield, to 
or the most advanced tracking technologies uh, and so forth, because we have seen that these authoritarian countries can not be trusted. I'm referring to the People's Republic of China and I'm referring to Russia. And I have taught in both of these countries. I've been teaching in China once a year since 1997. Love China, wonderful people, but I don't trust the leadership. Uh, you were saying the defense minister said the world has changed. Has the world really changed, in, or have we just taken our foot off the gas for so long and slowed down that everyone's caught up and passed us and now we're inefficient? The world hasn't changed. Those authoritarians were always thugs. Yeah. Always. What changed was our... We woke up. Yeah. We started to, pardon the slang English, we started to smell the coffee. We yeah. started to recognize reality. The reality was always there. Putin was always a thug and a murderer. I've been saying that for 20 years. I've said anyone who invests, I said this long before the invasion. If you invest in Russia, you should have your head examined because this man is, is completely corrupt, completely untrustworthy. He has opposition members killed long before he invaded Ukraine. And your investments in that country, are, uh, there, there is no rule of law for them. And so we, some of us knew that, many of us knew that. And yet this narrative was there that they were our partners and the Germans were the worst in this naivete, this belief that the Russian government under the Putin uh, government was going to be um, a good, reliable, solid, decent, honorable partner. And so that's what's changed is we got rid of our naivete and our wishful thinking. The underlying geopolitical reality has not changed. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the Three Amigos Summit and uh, the procurement of F-35 fighter jets. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very good. Uh, Lisa Pileski called to another uh, City Hall news conference, an emergency meeting, uh, and we got another poop spill on our hands, another poop pipe problem. Uh, are you surprised? considering the age of the hammer uh no i'm not surprised um i think we're going to get a whole bunch more and that's where this story kind of becomes uh, there's going to become a certain point at which we're like okay you know what this one i think had either 10 or 11 homes that somehow and i'm not dismissing it i mean it's gross and we got to stop it but there's going to become a certain point at which you know we're going to get an announcement saying there was a house that on November of 2015, a flush went directly into the harbor. And I understand what they're doing. The new city council is very aware of how much, pardon the pun, crap the old city council got for not releasing the thing about the, the mm -hmm. giant spill. Um, I don't know if people, I, I my fear out of this, Scott, is that yes, transparency is obviously a good thing. But as these things get smaller and smaller, I worry that people's concern and thought and attention to it becomes less and less until they're not even listening anymore. All right. We know it's an old city. We know there's old infrastructure underground, but this is a relatively new development in the sense that it was built in the 90s. Do you think this is about old standards or just not paying attention or do you think it's mm. it's, it's intentional? It's, you know, we, uh, we're not doing that. We'll just do this. 
Uh, look, I, I can't, I, I have no way to know the answer to that. Um, I do think though, whether or not it was any of those things, I, I do think the thing you started with is the bigger issue. We have, and there are parts of this city that are very old with very old infrastructure. That's yeah. the stuff that I'm worried about. I mean, you know, someone, if, if in fact this was an oversight or a boo-boo or something back in construction in the nineties, look, it, we've all made mistakes. I'm not excusing it. It's more to me what happens when we start digging up the old city. What do we find, and then how in the world do we pay for that to fix it? I again, I've had this discussion before. I think even had it with the new mayor uh, in regard to uh, the LRT. I mean, once we start pulling up uh, uh, the street, it's going to be amazing. I think what we find. I think there's going to be quite a bit of stuff down there. And you know, look, I, I, as my understanding is that as of the last agreement that the province would cover all these kinds of things i think i think that's the understanding of what would happen for anything for infrastructure under the lrt but what if it's under the lrt but then it's a sewer that goes from the main street onto some other street or i mean i I, i'm with you i as we start having to fix some of these things over the years over the next number of years the costs could become enormous and I don't think that I think a lot of people would in this city would say, oh, yeah, we've got to fix this. I don't want poo going right into the harbor. Who yeah. does? But I don't know how many people are going to be saying, oh, yeah. And I'm really on board with that 10 percent tax increase to cover all this because I think well, we yeah. need to do it. We well, that's want the, one- the stuff done. We don't want to pay for the stuff to be done. Well, that was, and that was one of the reasoning, uh, some of the reasoning behind the LRT is that obviously when they do all of this work and tear up uh, the streets and such, they're going to, you know, replace all of this hundred year old infrastructure, uh, which is obviously better to do it at that time than tear up something when development has already happened. You certainly can't go around the city and fix all of this uh, right away. I mean, my goodness, it would take you forever and everything would be torn up forever. Uh, you Scott, really have what to, happens you, when you, you have to deal with these problems. And you find all this, do you well, then all it, you of a sudden say, oh my, what's under King? Do we have to now, yeah. without the province's money, do we have yeah. to go and do this? Because that's going to have the well, same whether problems. You, whether you tore up the LRT or not, you're still going to have those problems in an offshoot off of Maine. So the point is your fixes, you're going to fix as much of that as you can because you're going to replace as much as you can. Uh, as far as, you know, replacing whatever is under the LRT and then an offshoot of Maine, uh, you know, I'm sure they'll evaluate that. Is this something that has to be done now? Is this something that can wait? Because usually what happens we wait until they blow and then we patch them back together so um you know again whether there's a problem there or not it's going to appear whether there's an lrt or not and it does you know it it does become a different story if this was if all these stories about the water the the leaks and everything if they were simply a fresh water line i think we probably have a different response to it than every time they say oh it's poo who seems to be the magic word that gets our attention go oh okay we got to fix that uh, what do, do you see all the gangsters we're going to dig up from under there? We're going to have a whole history lesson with this LRT. Let me tell you, man, who knows what we're going to find under there. All right, uh, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Uh, and Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, 
to have the last word. This one comes from Kyle. The F-35 is something that Canada has needed for a very long time. One of the things, if you are always ready, you never have to get ready. <laughs>